So, um, you know, just to put it in context again, I think we're all kind of up to speed, but we had um, 17 uh, was the um, fall of spiritual Babylon and uh, you know what, what had begun in uh, the rebellious establishment of man-made idolatry and religion all the way back with uh, the Tower of Babel and uh, that came to its uh, final chapter and then uh, you turn into chapter 18 and uh, God um, causes the collapse and destruction of uh, political financial Babylon. Uh, we still see, you know, some thin remnants of that that uh, have to be dealt with by the Lord. But as far as the successful organization of those things, the foundation crumbles and the whole thing comes down in uh, chapter 18. And then um, 19, we begin to see this amazing presentation of uh, our Lord's uh, kingdom and authority and power being established and and brought forth uh, upon the earth and and the world begins to see this you know as we have found it in the scripture and it's been revealed to us for you know believers for all throughout human history but now the world at that point is going to be experiencing it and uh, without pouring over every uh, detail of those first ten verses I'll just jump at verse 11 now i saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war uh you know some of my careful uh scholar friends under the age of five have pointed out that you know there's got to be animals in heaven if if horses are you know present i don't think horses get saved and go to heaven um I think this is a heavenly horse that's uh, coming forward here. But, you know, God's into animals. He, he made them. He established them. And, you know, I you know can't say all dogs go to heaven or anything like that. But, um, you know, the, the thought that uh, God has you know, animals in that creatures, uh, in that, you know, I think there are some interesting indicators, uh, you know, where he talks about, the rocks crying out. He talks about trees clapping. He, uh, you know, demonstrates that the serpent could speak, and Balaam's donkey brought a message to him. So maybe there's a whole different level of existence that you know may be in store to experience at, at that point. But white horse here, and uh, you know, faithful and true righteousness. He judges, and makes war. That would be our king and of course it's it's a difficult concept for some people that there is truly righteous war but there is there's a necessity uh to set things aright and to bring tyrants uh to an end you know ecclesiastes telling us that there's a time for every purpose under heaven you know we'd all love to pound our swords into plowshares and Never have to be concerned about the violence again. But currently, we are increasingly living on an ultra-violent planet. And it's necessary to defend ourselves. And the scripture does encourage that. Jesus himself uh, sent the apostles out without sword, money bag, extra coat, but then 
as he's preparing to leave and they're going to be sent out again, he tells them, sell your outer garment and buy yourself a sword. They say we have two. He says it's enough. I make the point that the sword of the spirit has to be the key to wielding the physical sword. If you don't have the sword of the spirit, then your judgment's not going to be as effective. So anyway, there's another whole discussion uh, to be had there. But there's, there is righteous judgment and righteous war. Uh, verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, similar to what we see described in chapter 1 when John first hears his voice and turns around to see that heavenly vision of Jesus with white hair, eyes like coals of fire, uh, burnished brass as his feet here. And we see his eyes like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And that's where all of the weirdos jump in and try to figure out what the name is. No one knows what it is except himself. I, I like the the fact that guys do that because immediately you go, oh, well, I don't have to listen to this guy. Because he shows you that he's a false teacher. If only Jesus knows the name, then, I mean, good grief, who do you think you are? That you're trying to tell us you've figured it out here in this spot. So he has this name written that no one knew except himself. The many crowns, right? He's king of kings, lord of lords, you know, Kyrios of Kyrios. And he has all authority, all power will be subjugated uh, to him. And there won't be any disagreement with that. There's no one going to be contesting uh, their authority and their crown and trying to defend that. Uh, verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. So we know that he is the Word of God. So this can't be the name that only he knew. Um, well, you know, we've John chapter 1, uh, verse 1. There's some interesting stuff to examine about John and the way he describes uh, this. And you go to um, uh, uh, 1 John and read that opening chapter there, and he talks about Jesus, whom they beheld and uh, handled with their hands, and they declare to you. And then you go back to John chapter 1, and in the beginning was the Word, and uh, you know he's referencing Moses. You know, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then God speaks everything into existence let there be light and there was light and now science is finally catching up and realizing oh hey everything's made up of words you know dna is a human not a human it's a digital construct of language and, and oh you know these sequences you know they are actually what everything is made everything is made from words well who would have thought you know, that the word created all things by speaking the word into the word which came into existence. Nothing came into existence except by him. Remarkable. And yet they shun that concept and try to redefine everything. If you have not seen uh, Ben Stein's movie Expelled, um, like write that down. Get that movie. Watch it. Um, in there, he uh, Michael Behe is he's Catholic, but I I believe him to be a genuine believer based upon his own confessions, 
And um, Michael Behe is one of the world's leading microbiologists. And uh, the world depends upon his understanding and his research. He's a brilliant guy. He wrote a book back in the early 90s uh, called Darwin's Black Box. And uh, he, uh, you know, I mean, he's developmental in science at the level only a few people have been in history. And he put forward a concept, not a theory, a, a scientific concept referred to as irreducible complexity. And in that, uh, the illustration he gives is uh, the mousetrap. In that, you, you have a few basic items that make up the mousetrap. And if any one of them is missing, <clears throat> the mousetrap doesn't work. So, you know, you have the platform, you have two staples, you have a spring, you have a copper hammer, you have a trip, you have a catch. You know, any one of those pieces and you nullify the whole mousetrap, it doesn't work. It doesn't accomplish its job. So he takes that into the biological realm and says, that's how everything is. That's how everything is in biology. So, so nothing was at a place of lesser existence and added things to itself in order to become that irreducibly complex thing that then you know has its function you, you he he moves over into the discussion about uh single-celled uh bacteria and how it moves through fluid and it has a flagellum that spins and that's what propels it through and every single part of that bacteria is necessary it won't function otherwise so they say there was a time where it didn't have the flagellum well, it wouldn't have existed. It has to have every single element in order to exist. So he explains biology from that position of irreducible, irreducible complexity and says, you know, DNA is what determines each of these things. Language, written language. The RNA is the copy from the DNA, so each part is built. And if the recorded sequence of language in the DNA is not there, to include that, where, where does it get? Oh, suddenly it decides I need a flagellum, this hair-like spinner to move through fluid in order to gain life for itself. Where, where did it get the information that it included into its own DNA in order to build that? Nowhere. It, it ha all of that information had to be intact at its simplest state. And that's how all things that exist, exist. You have to have the the whole package. So, you know, here, you know, his name is the word. His robe dipped in blood. We, we hear about the judgment that he carries out and the prophet saying, you know, who is this? It comes from Basra and his clothes are, you know, uh, red and stained. And there the Lord says, you know, it's, it's me and I've come from judgment and I've been trampling out the grapes of my wrath and you know then we move into revelation and we hear about the grapes of wrath and and humanity and the harvest that is going to come and here his clothes are drenched in blood and of course he's fresh from war and uh, what we've seen described in the previous chapters and all that is uh, unfolding there verse 14 the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen and there's that hint again 
about the clothed in righteousness and the white robes. Here they are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So, you know, there's a big stable up there. You know, some people, you, know, you get to this point and you start talking about it and they're like, well, I'm not good at riding horses or I've never ridden. Trust me, you know, you're going to be fine. It's, nobody's going to be flailing around looking goofy on a horse. It's, uh, you know, First Corinthians tells us that when we see him, we will know just as we are known. So to whatever degree the Lord is going to give us knowledge and capability, I'm just suspecting that we'll all probably be pretty you know, decent at riding horses when we, we finally get there. Uh, my, my daughter, Rebecca, is convinced that that's evidence that we should all have horses now. But anyway, just, you know. to which I say, well, you know, all of us should have good voices right now, and we don't. So, you know, we'll just, we'll wait. We'll wait on that. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You know, that wrathful, vengeful God of the Old Testament, they will often say. We're in the New Testament here. And this is what they would refer to as loving, meek Jesus, who's always, you know, compassionate, kind, you know, always, uh, you know, turns away. Well, here he is with a sword that proceeds from his mouth and a wrath and a rod of iron. And that's the idea of like a scepter that he would have in his hand. Symbol of authority, which is also used to carry out the judgment and dash to pieces those who oppose him, according to, I believe it's Isaiah. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords um you know there's a lot of discussion nowadays about you know does jesus actually have a tattoo does he actually have his name written on his thigh you know or is this a sticker or embroidered on his clothing you know in this well here's something to think about the lord places his mark his seal upon the forehead of everyone of his believers and then satan follows suit through the antichrist and puts the mark of the beast upon all of his followers the lord goes first in marking his own upon their forehead you know and you know everybody that dislikes tattoos immediately says oh no that's it's not going to be it's not going to be visible it's just symbolic it's a spiritual thing and Whichever side of that coin you're on, okay, fine with me. I don't really care. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I have tattoos, but I'm not all hung up on them, and I don't think everybody should get them. Um, I'm not saying that. I just think that there's an older generation that's diametrically opposed to it and has a mindset that it's associated with that which is evil. And they go back to Leviticus and you know want to point out, look right here, it says you shall not be tattooed as the heathen. To which I say, I'm not tattooed as the heathen. You know, my, my tattoos don't have anything to do with wickedness or, you know, things of that nature. I have the scripture references I do on my forearms because I want people to wonder. And 
you would not believe how many people have found themselves in biblical discussions wishing they could get out of them, but you asked, you know? Hey, what's up with that on your forearm? Well, since you asked, you know, and since we're trapped here in the checkout line, now we're going to talk about it, you know, until you leave. <laughs> you know, that, that was the whole point. Well, you know, I could have written out the whole verse, you know, and just put that on my arm or something. And, you know, then they get to read it and decide right then. Oh, I don't want to talk to this guy. No, I want the conversation. That's the point within it. Jesus bears his name, uh, you know, upon his vestment and upon his thigh. I guess we'll have to wait and see exactly what that means. Once again, King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority. No, no one gets to override him. Interesting today you see more and more people posting on the internet about their interactions with police officers. And I think some of it's good. Um, you know, certain police officers are abusing their powers. And I think that that's causing the whole thing to fester. You know, I, I think I've been in the presence of police officers who have abused their power. I think I have. But you know what? I was completely compliant. And I went on my merry way very quickly. <laughs> Just, yes, sir. No, sir. Why? Because they're the authority in the situation. If they're abusing their power, they have an authority over them that they're going to have to answer to. And I'm talking about God, this King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You know, Jesus didn't tell the Roman guards it was wrong to be a Roman guard. They asked him specifically, what do we do? Right? He said two things. Be content with your wages and don't abuse your power. Right? No longer extort people. And they extorted them for all kinds of things, not just money. Right? They were abusive with their power. Jesus said, don't do that. Be content with your wages and don't abuse your power. I think that that stands for everyone who has similar authority. You, know, you you do have a position of authority that's been given to you by God, but don't abuse that. Because there is a king of kings and lord of lords. And we're all going to have to stand before him, and we're all going to have to answer for the things we've done. Look, I'd love to blame it on somebody else, but I've been a sinful man, and I've been given authority before, and it went right to my head. You know, I know that didn't happen to any of you guys. You've never had to contend with that. But we are sinful people needs to be that we bow our knee to this king. And as a result, right, wasn't that that whole discussion with the centurion who Jesus stopped everything and said, everybody look at this guy's faith right here. I've not seen faith like this even in all of Israel. What was, what was the crux of that whole thing? That centurion said, I am a man under authority. And Jesus said, hold the phone. Everybody needs to examine this right here. In, in the rest of human history, right? Because it got recorded by the Holy Spirit in the scripture. I'm a man under authority. I'm not a man who has authority. I'm not a man who possesses authority. I'm not a man who wields authority. He said, I'm a man who's under authority. And then he makes the point that, yes, men are under me, 
but that's because I'm under authority. If I'm not under authority, men aren't going to want to submit to me. When you recognize and submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, your authority becomes much more powerful. Much more powerful. You know, in households when men say, I'm the head of this household. God has made me. If you're not submitted to Jesus Christ, you're just making a bunch of noise at that point and making people angry. <laughs> really. Needs to be that you've demonstrated. You've demonstrated that you're under that authority. That, that Jesus Christ rules your heart and your mind and your life and your conduct. He is a king of kings and a lord of lords. I, I long for his coming and I pray. Right? We hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're looking for. 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Well, he's not in the sun. You know, that's it's tough to look right at the sun. You know, and it's what? 92.6 million miles away. Is that is that an angel? I can't. The idea is that he's standing in front of the sun, is what's being said. I make the point because people love to argue about everything. And uh, you're going to find that at some point. I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Remember, we, we saw the marriage of the lamb and the great feast that was there. There's two great meals that are described here. You want to go to the first one so that you can partake of that great menu. Because if you do not, and you end up at the second one, then you're on the menu. And, you know, that's just never a comfortable situation. So here, gather the birds, get your, you know, best bib and tucker all ready, and we'll be able to have this great meal. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sat on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This is literally, you know, it's strange to think of it this way, but this is literally the Lord making a mockery of, in contrast, right? He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's making a mockery of, of all of the pomp and circumstance that humanity puts upon itself. You know? Oh, what's on the... Imagine if he was calling out names, right? You know? This evening's menu will hold Will Cass. And, you know, I mean, it's like, it's you know, what, wait, wait a second. What, what are you talking about? King, king, what's on the menu? Kings and lords and knights and, you know. It's literally the Lord making a mockery of their authority. And he hasn't even, you know, invited, right? This isn't a meal where he's invited royalty. He's invited the scavengers, you know, bring in the Karen birds to come and clean up this mess, right? The roadkill crew is here to take over. Such a strange picture within that, right? Psalm chapter 2. You know, why do the wicked plot this stupid thing? It just, you know, the Lord will hold them in derision. 
There's a mockery, a strong mockery in that. Let me introduce you to my dinner guests, right? Mr. Crow and Mr. Raven and, you know, have you met the turkey vulture? You know, this, this is the way the Lord is presenting this whole thing. You know, it, what have the great people of the earth come to? Second and third course of my great meal. So strange that we elevate ourselves the way that people do, the, the way that people, you know, think they're getting away with it. You know, you, you hear everybody all wound up right now, right? You got this perverted man, and he was heads of state, and they had a private island, and all this terrible things. There is a coming day where all of these people are going to have to pay. And, you know, I'd like it to have been long ago that none of these things would have transpired. But you don't get away with anything, right? What about the people who were so misused in those circumstances? Right. And he will wipe away every tear, even the ones from far distant past. When you get to be in the presence of the Lord and experience his great love and his comfort, I imagine, right? Well, what does he tell us, right? The former things will not be remembered. You know, somebody's trying to remind you, weren't you terribly abused? I, I, you know, I don't, was I? I don't, it, things are so good here. I just can't, I can't really recall, you know, I, I never get tired here. You know, it's just perfect temperatures all the time. You know, wonderful menu, food, fellowship, song, celebration. Just And it seems like it's been going on forever, you know. I just, that what, were things bad? <laughs> what was that like? So hard to remember, right? You know, can you remember right now what was 20 years ago, 30 years ago? But what, what, what if it's 5,000 years ago, right? 10,000 years ago. I mean, there's there's probably going to become a point where you're like, why would I even try to remember? There's all that pain and misery. Not, not interested. Here, glorious presence of the Lord. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. True sign of insanity right there. Just so that's God? All right. Let's go to war. I, uh, I read an article. Um, was, it was on a different subject, but uh, in it they had um, a section that was recorded by the warden of uh, London, England's uh, insane asylum from the late... 1800s and things were pretty brutal at the time and they had processes by which they would release people after treatment which was pretty horrific but he had a final test where if the courts had said he's going to sign off on you, you getting out in public you've been sentenced to this location and if he releases you and you do bad things it, you know, somebody's going to answer. He doesn't want to be the fall guy. 
So he had a, a personal test, and he had it actually incorporated into the legal process of release. He would take every single one of those inmates that was going to be released to a janitor's closet. And he would turn a sink on and get a, a rag really wet, and he would jam it down into the sink so that it would start to fill up, and it's going to overflow. And he would put a mop pail in there, ringer, and hand the inmate a mop and shut the door. Leave them in there with that sink. And if they would reach in and pull the rag out of the sink and let the water out, then he would release them. But if they started trying to mop the water and clean up or do anything other than reach down in there and pull that rag out of the sink, he would not release them. Because they didn't have the common sense to deal with a simple problem properly. Right? You've decided to go to war against God. Um, you're out of your ever-loving mind at this point. Now, I personally, and I'm going to go a little ways into this, I've talked about it before, but um, I personally think, and especially right now, it's interesting how much discussion is, there is about UFOs. I personally think that that's going to be part of the um, discussion. So um, I've got a pretty detailed opinion about the whole thing. There, there is a doc, couple documentaries. Um, Schneider, forget his first name, did one recently. Pretty detailed, good explanation. Uh, there was one done in 97, I believe it was. Dave Hunt was a Calvary Chapel pastor from Bent, Oregon. He was part of the production uh, in it. And um, the summary is that um, it's, it's demonic. Um, that's, that's my personal opinion, and that seems to be what the evidence says. Now, just so that you don't look silly... If you end up having this discussion and somebody says, what do you think of UFOs? And you say, I think they're demons. Um, that blunt answer won't go very far with a lot of people. There are some details about it that are really quite interesting. Um, in the end, what are we talking about? Unidentified. Dwell on that for a long time, right? Unidentified. Flying objects. Okay, that could be any number of things. Uh, what they have discovered is that a lot of what is reported as unidentified flying objects are reflections. Right? That's part of what accounts for the tremendous speeds that they're capable of. You're not actually looking at the object. The object is flying, but it's usually on the opposite side of where you are. It's The light is being projected, and so the movement is very rapid, you know, tens of thousands of miles an hour when they do from, oh, it was by that mountain and it passed all the way over there, you know, in like two and a half seconds. Yeah, because it was behind and, you know, when it went by the light. So anyway, they've discovered that on their own. <clears throat> the real summary that uh, uh, UFO Deception is the name of the uh, documentary um, the real summary of the thing is that the United States government in particular, all the nations of the world, but in particular the United States government, started doing experiments 
at Area 51. That's a real place. Um, in the early, in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, by 1959, they had developed uh, an aircraft that it was a CIA project funded by CIA, and it was known as Oxcart. Oxcart was capable of flying three times the sound barrier in 1959. Okay, we hadn't uh, we hadn't put a man on the moon yet, and we were flying at 73,000 feet in the atmosphere at three times the sound barrier, taking uh, one meter resolution photographs from 73,000 feet. It was a spy plane. Okay. Flew out of uh, Area 51, and there were several projects at Area 51 at the time that ended up falling under this purview. Circular aircraft were uh, one of our biggest areas of development. Um, omnidirectional flight, so um, up and down in any direction. Move in any direction, up and down, horizontally moving. You know, as it moved up, it could move horizontally. Uh, we built it, we developed it, um, and as far as we know, we're still using it. Right? Uh, Canada built the engines for it. Thank you very much, Canada. You know, they're pretty smart at a lot of things. All of it was declassified in the first term of Barack Obama's presidency, and they published lengthy articles about the whole thing. Uh, we crashed one pretty early on in the development. We had done a bunch of test flights just up and down, a little bit of sideways and movement. And we got the thing moving at a pretty good clip, but it was relatively unstable when it reached certain speeds, apparently. And uh, we crashed one pretty early on. Uh, you'll never guess where, but, uh, you know, Roswell, New Mexico. And uh, there was a whole bunch of hullabaloo about it. And the government did move in in seconds and seal the whole place off. Why? Because it's a top secret aircraft. And we collect all of our parts and pieces and we move out of town. And that leaves everybody there to speculate about what just happened. And anybody that says it was alien spacecraft from, from another planet, <clears throat> the United States government actually encourages that. Because it makes the account of the crash just seem stupid. You know, nobody is even thinking that's remotely real. So they, they feed that idea. Yes. Yeah, we think so too. Yeah. Aliens from another planet. That's exactly what we were thinking. You know, they, they let people run with this whole thing. <clears throat> so years pass. And we're running into a lot of this trouble because we can't tell people where we're flying, when we're flying. So there ends up being a handful of occasions where our aircraft is flying in close proximity to commercial aircraft. And we have to immediately ground the plane and then have big discussions with more than 100 passengers at a time. And what the United States government starts doing is handing out paychecks, small paychecks. Here's $100 and sign this document. If you refuse to sign the document, you're going to get in trouble. If you sign the document, you're now a paid employee of the United States government who has military secrets. And if you divulge them to anyone, it's treasonous and you can get in very serious trouble. So the situation develops further 
to where all kinds of uh, reports are coming in and the government needs to know is this like did they really see one of our aircraft or not so they create what becomes known as the blue book files this isn't like me following conspiracy theory weirdness this is all very well documented stuff and that's just government agents here you saw an alien spacecraft and they just show up and ask questions and they classify it, right? <sighs> Close encounter of the fourth kind. Close encounter of third, second, first kind, right? This is literally what they're doing. And they prefer it. They prefer it if you sound like a complete lunatic. And you go on and on and on. Now, spacecraft. People actually having encounters with them. Uh, it apparently has happened. Um, but to what degree and what are they? That becomes the question. Well, there are some interesting things because this has been happening for actually centuries. People are not aware of that. They think of it as being only since the 50s. But according to the recorded reports, aliens from other worlds have been showing up here for centuries, and when they first started showing up, they came on sailing ships like masts and sails and like would go on the ocean and they would drop anchor. And, you know, these were the stories that were told. People were abducted, taken aboard the ships, you know, Shanghai and taken away and brought back. You know, the theory behind that is that uh, the same delusion, right, is taking place centuries ago, but, the beings that are bringing that delusion to people's minds don't have a knowledge of what the future technologies are going to be. So they're presenting themselves with the most advanced technologies of their day. They're teaching people we come from other planets and we come from other realms, but we sailed here on this sailing ship is what they're teaching them. So some facts about all of these encounters. Everyone who was questioned in the ancient world and in the modern world about coming into direct contact with the ships and the beings on these ships, ancient ships, sailing ships, or spaceships, all of, the, all of them have two things in common. They all record an overwhelming stench of sulfur which, by the way, is the fuel of hell. And they all experience profound mental illness after they've had the encounter. Profound. Just cannot communicate with people, cannot socialize, cannot, I mean, mental breakdown after having had these encounters in the process. The beings from these craft ancient and modern all of them have had a common message and you heard it in star trek weird gene roddenberry picked it up and used it and the message is as you are we once were and as we are you someday will be evolution is what they're saying 
and it's a spiritual evolution. You're going to become more and more advanced. This is why the New Age is all integrated into aliens and spacecraft and all of that mind frame, right? They, they think of them as avatars from another uh, realm, okay? Do they actually have ships? Are they, you know, if they are demons, do they actually have ships? Possibly. Maybe, you know. Or maybe they're just tinkering with people's minds, you know. Satan put it into Judas's mind to betray Jesus. John recorded that. Put the thought in his mind. Can they read your mind? Not according to the scripture, but they can influence your mind. So, you know, in this whole great picture, now, now comes the real punchline for me. There are two messages about aliens that we have been fed constantly, especially, you know, as we get more and more advanced in, you know, entertainment movie making. And the two messages that are most prominent about aliens is <clears throat> there are aliens who are super intelligent and they are coming here to help us and to lead us and to teach us and to empower us. That's one brand of alien. The other brand of alien are murderous body snatchers, right? They steal people away. They abduct them, right? Do weird things to them. Do unspeakable, horrifying things to them. And they may even steal people in mass at some point. Come and take a huge number of people all at once. These are the common stories. Saviors of humanity who are supremely intelligent come to help us or body snatchers who we need to prepare ourselves to defend ourselves against them. Okay, now biblically, I'll not say planet, but let's say beings from another realm arriving here with a message of superior intelligence to teach and lead humanity is antichrist creatures from another realm who come here to take human beings that's our savior come to take the church who will come back to do war against this planet so when i see here that Antichrist, the beast, and humanity has gathered itself together to do war. And I say, they're out of their mind. They're crazy. I also partly understand why they're going to do that. Because our culture has been being fed this message. Right? I mean, there are just some amazing things to consider about space travel. Is it even possible? Beings from another planet? Um... The size of the universe makes that impossible within itself. You know, if, if you can build a ship, <clears throat> here's a concept. If you're going to travel at the speed of light, which is going to be pretty necessary if you're going to make it across the universe. Otherwise, just, you, you know, you, you don't have enough time to travel the distance. So you're going to travel at supernatural speeds. If you're going to do that, you have to either have perfect accuracy in your navigation because space is not empty. 
right? You can't just sort of aim at planet Earth from wherever you are and push the button and shoot a straight line. You kind of you got to run into stuff along the way. So you're either going to have perfect navigation, and this is conceptually weird, or, which is the best concept of this type of travel, you have to be able to absorb everything that's in front of you, all of the matter, use it as energy as it passes through your spacecraft, and you expel it out the other side, right? It has to, like a rail you have to run on the matter that is space. Those are the two concepts of space travel. Either one of those requires an energy level of propulsion and navigation that's not in existence. It's not in existence. It's not that it's unknown. It's just not in existence. So a better thought is interdimensional travel. That these creatures, if they are real, and it's not just imagination, they are coming from another realm. We've read several times in here that hell is going to burst open and stuff is going to end up here in our realm. I think that's much more plausible, the explanation, all along the way, that what humanity has been experiencing is other dimensional entering this dimensional. Right? you got to look at Genesis chapter 6 and see the sons of God interacting with humanity and I don't know how to process all of that biblically but it is described so when we get to this point I think I think it's important and significant to talk to people about this to what degree are you going to talk to them I don't know you know I'm pretty well versed in all of that subject matter, and I can go in a lot of different directions with the discussion, you know, on a science fiction sort of realm. But our, our society has been so steeped in this concept that at some point it's going to come up in the discussion. And I think the best explanation is just to go to that demonic understanding and say look it's delusion it's a deception and that's preparing humanity for these two thoughts jesus christ is going to come back and millions of people are going to disappear all at once and the world is going to go berserk and there is going to be a leader coming and there is going to be supernatural thing and then that leader is going to lead people to go and arm themselves against the returning Christ. When I have explained it that way to total non-believers, you can see the shock on their face like, wow, I've been being fed that story from a different angle for a long time. You know, whether they embrace it or not, the realization like, oh, those puzzle pieces fit together. You know, the aha moment, and then they have to process that on their own. So I would encourage you to, you know, look into that more. Um, the uh, UFO uh, deception, I, I think it was uh, still available on Amazon for like $19. It's a DVD. Good, good, kind of scary, some of it, uh, but uh, good entertaining documentary here. So I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those 
who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now, I want to point out here, right? This is like you almost want to jump up at this point and like applaud the end of the movie, you know, just finally. The beast and the false prophet captured and the conclusion of some, some terrible things that have transpired. But within that, the uh, he deceived those who received the mark. Remember that it said that he was you know, able to perform signs and wonders, even able to call fire down from heaven and destroy his enemies. So, you know, the, the idea that all of that was deception that you know to whatever degree uh, he was doing those things it was uh, nothing more than illusion um i'll just give that one example uh you know david blaine uh, you know everybody was all fascinated with him years ago doing street magic and he's freaking people out and you know i can have a lot to say about that but um uh, you know next comes chris angel he was you know super spooky and scary and you know he's got you know weird eyes and stares at the camera all strange and you know has all these demonic symbols and everybody's thinking oh he's supernatural well the the first time i saw him um he made a, a card float in midair and so you know he he starts out with uh, the card in his hand and uh you know he starts his thing and Oh, it floats up in the air, and he's making it spin around. And, you know, he's got that whole, you know, theatrical uh, look and appearance. And you know, if you just took it at face value, it's scary. You know, he's he's holding this thing in the air, you know, between his two hands and making it spin around. Well, the very next day, I, I mean, YouTube just exposes these guys. So you know, I, I look up like floating card trick. Chris Ain is an eighth grader who's doing it in his bedroom. You know, little frumpy kid, you know, got toys in the background and stuff, and Legos. And <clears throat> he's literally saying, let me show you how Chris Angel did this. So uh, he, he shows you the fishing line that he's tied to his, the button on his shirt. And he explains the, the actual filament you want to use because it, it doesn't reflect light. So, you know, that's the one that's most transparent. He, he shows you the package of the, the clear sticky tack, like you would put posters up on the wall with, that he's taken a little tiny piece off and he's embedded the end of that fishing line in it and he's put it on his thumb right here. And he keeps it warm between his fingers as he talks and holds the card in this hand. And when he's ready to do the trick, he picks the card up like this. And holds it out to you. And that's him pressing the fishing line and the sticky tack on the back of the card. Right? And then he sets it down in his hand like this. And he, he purposely rolls his thumb off from that. The fishing line is across the back of his thumb. And he draws his hand back to the fishing line on his shirt. And then as he lowers his hand down... So you see it in the camera. He pushes his hand forward. The fishing line's over his finger. And when he gets to this point, the card starts to lift up in the air. And now, I mean, take this hand away. The fishing line is over his thumb. It's down to here. The card's dangling in the air. Making it move in the air is as simple. This eighth, this eighth grader is explaining to you, I simply breathe on it. 
it's it's now dangling in the air and as i breathe it moves around and you know he, he this eighth grader is even like and if i had a spooky look you know <laughs> he just it's delusion it's illusion that's all it is and and humanity wants you know when people when people want to laugh it's much easier for the comedian to do his show right when, when people want to laugh you know be deceived it's much easier to perform the magic tricks you know our culture is is more and more primed for this entertainment is priming people and priming people and priming people for the moment where they'll be able to come in now i i think that there will be very powerful things evan and i were talking about this satellite system that they're developing that has these rods that they drop from orbit and they're targeting pinpoint accurately targeting locations well the the speed that they fall they're they're going many times the sound barrier when that rod finally hits it falls like a dart so imagine dropping a dart from outer space right i mean that one that could actually not burn up when it hits the explosion it, you don't even have to have any explosive element in it just the the rod traveling that fast causes massive devastation you know calling down fire upon their enemies you know illusion you know, i'm sure that their power will be like <clears throat> i'll go another direction with that <clears throat> you remember when elijah called down fire from heaven the prophets of baal <clears throat> several elements of that in the scripture actually tell us things about the illusion of the prophets of baal we found from the ancient world <clears throat> that the prophets of baal did this trick calling fire down from heaven repeatedly that this was a thing they did elijah never did this he taught people how to worship god basically what elijah did was say so you guys call fire down from heaven let's have a duel i'll call fire down from heaven and you do your normal trick call fire down from heaven right <clears throat> what they would do is they would have a location that was all prepared and they would dig a tunnel to the location and underneath it they would put all kinds of flammable fuel in it and and even to the point where when they would say we'll pour water over this so that you'll know it's right they were pouring oil over it not water so that when the guy often the guy who lit the um uh the altar from underneath in the tunnel apparently many times that person died right they, they would tie a rope to their ankle and they would crawl in there and light it and everybody else would haul him out and hopefully he didn't get burned to death in the process illusion this is why elijah digs a moat all the way around his to show no tunnel here and we're going to fill that with water you guys get the water like so you know it's not me bringing some oil mixture in here you guys go get the water not bail but the, you know just the other people go get water and completely saturate this thing and fire falls from heaven and leaves a crater right to show the supernatural power of God. 
prophets of Baal are throwing themselves on the thing, cutting themselves, you know, torturing themselves. They did this in other occasions where they would throw themselves on and they would have a lamp. They would throw themselves on the altar and set it on fire while they were there, sometimes catch themselves on fire. They were doing all their normal tricks to try and get their altar to catch on fire. God literally prevented it. Go ahead, ding your, dig your tunnel. Put your fuel. Go ahead, throw fuel on it. Throw yourselves on the altar. You remember what uh, Elijah was saying? Maybe your God's using the bathroom. Maybe you should yell louder. You just, he's mocking them in it. They, they are illusionists who are capturing the hearts and minds of the people through lies. And that's what's going on in our culture. Here, they deceive those who receive the mark of the beast, and those two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Remember the rebellion of Korah against Moses? And Moses, I paraphrase these all the time, but he, you know, he, he basically says, if you're on God's team, come over here and stand with me. And if these guys die the way that everybody dies naturally, then I'm not the leader and God is not God. But if the ground opens up and swallows them and all of their households, then you'll know that I'm anointed by God and these guys are liars. And it says that the ground opened up and they fell into the pit alive, literally meaning the abyss, all the way into hell. Here, similar thing. You, you want to deceive the people. You want to lead them into false worship. You're going to pay the ultimate penalty. The rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So, you know, not nice when uh, you just get to be in the army that rides behind the one guy who does all of the battle. And then, you know, more than conquerors, we get to declare the victory with him. This, uh, uh, yeah. George Foreman uh, has professed to be a believer. And in discussing uh, Christ, um, it came up about being, you know, he's, he's a conqueror. He's, you know, was he a five-time world heavyweight champion, but he, George uh, you know, talking about Christ being more than a conqueror. You, see, you, you want to understand more than a conqueror? Look at my wife. I go out, I carry out the battle, I bring her home the check. <laughs> right? We are more than conquerors. Christ is our victor. And we get the payday. That's a beautiful picture. That we follow on the white horses our victorious king, but there's there's no concern for us. You know, you don't have to go into that battle thinking now, I really hope boot camp pays off right here. I hope you know I hope that I've you know trained well enough. I hope that uh, you know I'm good enough. I hope that somewhere I haven't displeased my king. I hope I keep my heels down in these stirrups. I hope that you do none of that comes into play. You just follow the victor and he conquers everybody and you know, turns around and says, hooray, we win. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. And with that, it's a really unfortunate thing that so many people are deceived, that they follow the enemy. Uh, Satanism is a strange thing to me. 
you're admitting that you know that that's Satan and that's Lucifer. That means you're admitting you know there's a God. So you've you've chosen the losing team like purposely. That was your that was your intention. It's such a strange concept, and all of humanity is actually engaged in that when you think about it, right? They make the presentation. Pilate makes the presentation. We've got this murderous man, right? Who you know Barabbas has led an insurrection and caused Rome to come crashing down upon you Jews and, you know, created terrible circumstances for all of this culture and society. And then you got Jesus, the Prince of Life, who's done nothing but good and feed and heal and, you know, walk on water and perform miracles. Now, who do you want, the Prince of Life or the murderer? And they want the murderer. And, and that's where our culture is at. Choosing, willfully choosing the worst options possible. You know, we come to an election and everybody walks away going, how did that happen? <laughs> Welcome to the human race. This, this is the ill-fated decisions we make all the time. There's nothing new in the process. So we'll pick up with chapter 20 uh, next week, the, the victory of Christ uh, seen there. And now we begin to enter into the finality of his judgments and the things that transpire there. So we'll pray and then stay in fellowship for a little while.